Welcome to Surviving Society live from the BSA. Um, we are on our last few episodes now. Um, we are really pleased to be joined by Jessica Penny, who is a PhD researcher at the University of Glasgow. Um, hello, Jessica. Hi. Jessica, please tell us about your research because it's a fascinating topic and I don't think we've ever spoken about this on the podcast before. So Yeah, there's not many Inuit researchers, so this is definitely a new topic. So my research basically takes the case study of a hydroelectric um, project that's being built near my mom's hometown in Labrador, Canada, which is the kind of northeastern part of the country. Um, and it's looking at how this hydroelectric project is anticipated to have social impacts for Inuit. More generally, for my master's research, which I was presenting on indigenous health. Um, and so the hydroelectric project, um, we usually think hydroelectricity is green and clean and um, a good way to get away from fossil fuels. But in this case, um, there was a research project done by the Inuit self-governing uh, government called Nunatsirut, and the uh, they partnered with Harvard University, and they found that the hydroelectric project is likely to raise methylmercury levels in the surrounding waters to a what could be a harmful level. So basically, I'm not a scientist or biological scientist by any means, but my understanding is that when you flood a floodland for a reservoir for a hydroelectric project, um, a lot of the matter and uh, plants and trees and roots and things like that rot, um, which in which decomposes and um, creates more methylmercury, which goes into the food chain and bioaccumulates. So the fish um, become contaminated and the seals eat the fish and the people eat the seals. And so a lot of people there depend, including my family, on um, on hunting and fishing and things like that for their food. And so that's the way that um, it could impact health because it um, methylmercury is a neurotoxin. So it's especially harmful for children and uh, fetuses and pregnant women, but it also, with adults, it can affect um, like the cardiovascular system, the endocrine system, things like that. So those are the kind of health issues that I'm looking at in my research. Is the project going ahead? Yeah, the project is um, will be is meant to be operational by the end of this year. So, so they don't care about the health concerns. Well, there's been a lot of resistance throughout the mm. past. Well, since the project was announced, um, when but was it announced? Sorry, um, that's a good question. A long time ago. So Hi. it's the, I know the resistance has been going on for heavily for the past few years, but probably at like ten to fifteen okay, years. Yeah. Um, but so for my master's research, I worked with a group called the Labrador Land Protectors, and they're a grassroots organization that's fighting against the Muscat Falls project. Um, and they're indigenous led and they have really, really dedicated members. So I worked with them last summer to understand their health concerns and what motivated them to um, participate in resistance to the project. Um, so that's why I was presenting on. Do you know what's really coming into my head? Racial capitalism here and how capitalism obviously is something that is destroying the planet but the capitalists have caught on to this so they're finding ways to fight that but at the expense of people's lives like their people are expendable and this is this is essentially what is happening um yeah i think that that's a good analysis i i mostly use the framework of settler colonialism to well that's good that's good yeah, yeah, yeah. that's the words i wanted to say but i didn't know whether you like how yeah. you were framing it but so yeah i think that 
Yeah, so right now um, I've just started my PhD and this is data from my master's uh, research, but my PhD is more looking into how this project relates to settler colonialism in Canada. So um, settler colonialism is basically has kind of two parts and the first one is taking the land. Um, but in order to do that, um, it tries to get rid of indigenous peoples. So the way that that's been done mostly in North America and particularly in Canada is through assimilation policies. Um, and the way that I'm looking at this through uh, my paper at the BSA was to look at how um, Tuck and Yang in a paper called Decolonization is on a Metaphor kind of frame settler colonialism in North America in two ways. First, Sorry, de decolonization is not a metaphor. Yeah. Right. Okay. So um, they really talk about how um, decolonization in North America is related to land and getting the land back. And yeah, so they talk about how there's um, external and internal colonialism in North America in settler colonialism because the external part is kind of making the land into natural resources that can be sold for the benefit of the colonizer. And then there's the internal colonialism, which is like managing the indigenous peoples. And through my research, I see that as the way that the people who resist the project are managed. They're taken off of their land. They're not allowed to access the land because now there's a hydroelectric project there. Um, when they try to resist that, they're arrested and they're jailed. Um, so there's a lot of ways that it makes I think, me think of um, there's so many resonances around the world, like in Australia with um, Aboriginal different tribes having their land taken away and um, like environmental destruction, same in India. And again, like, you know, you have these resistance movements, but obviously the interests of capital are such that the state doesn't really give a shit because they're like, well, we're going to make a lot of money if we put this mining a company here or if we sell off this land to like make a freeway or whatever it is yeah there's kind of no concern for the or no there is a concern for the people who live there the concern the, the fact is they're not concerned mm -hmm. well, what i was going to ask the question is probably the other way from what we're talking about so they're building that plant so what is it replacing a is it replacing another plant or is it is it something that new to generate more power for a bigger area or so yeah so the it's not necessarily replacing anything and it, it will generate my understanding is that it will generate more than is needed so the region it is meant to supply um, electricity or power for the region but also possibly it's been talked about selling it to other regions okay. so That's selling the power that. yeah and I think it's a really interesting aspect of this is that it's a state-owned corporation that's doing this project. Um, in Canada, we call it a crown corporation. Could you tell us a little bit about like what the word Inuit means? Yeah. Um, so Inuit live um, all over the Arctic, basically. So um, from uh, parts of Russia to Alaska to northern parts of Canada and Greenland. So Inuit kind of are spread out all over the north. And within Canada, there are four Inuit regions. So there's... Um, the Inuvialuit region, um, there's Nunavut, which is where I grew up, um, there's Nunatsiavut, which is where my mom's family is from and my, where my research is based, and there's Nunavik, which is um, in the northern part of the province of Quebec. So the word Inuit literally means people. So we have generally historically been referred to as Eskimos, which is kind of considered a derogatory term. It's not it's not a word that we use for ourselves because it's an imposed term. So, um, yeah, we call ourselves 
Inuit, and the singular uh, word for that is Inuk, so I would say that I'm an Inuk, or I am from an Inuit community. So yeah, you said there's not much other work that's been done around Inuit uh, communities in social sciences. No, uh, I would actually say it's quite the opposite. Um, there's actually a lot of research on Inuit. There's, it's very common um, in indigenous uh, communities to say that we're like the most researched people ever, because <laughs> it's kind of true. It's like throughout um, anthropology and like the kind of origins Rice. of yeah, that yeah. thing. Yeah. So we're super researched, and even the field of Inuit health is really uh, prominent. But there's still not much research being done by. Inuit about Inuit. Yeah, that's more what I meant. But I realized as I said, I was like, obviously, like research as a form of violence has long histories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think um, in recent years, Inuit organizations have done really well at um, managing research in Inuit communities. So um, acting as a kind of gatekeeper in a way, but in a way to make sure that um, research is done that is about Inuit priorities. And there are increasingly more Inuit researchers. Um, most of us are quite young, but it's it's a growing field and I'm pretty confident that it's going to increase, particularly around health. Why is that such a... Yeah, so we actually have huge health disparities, in um, which is common in Indigenous communities all over the world um, in comparison to the general population. So if you look at, um, for example food insecurity, uh, the rate of food security in Nunatsi Root, where my uh, family's from, is 61.1% of households are food insecure, versus the Canadian average, which is around 12%. And another one is tuberculosis, which is a common um, issue in places that have like social inequality, so not uh, like a lack of housing or um, a lot of people living in one house. and. Um, poor quality of housing. In Canada, the rate of TB in some Inuit communities is 300 times the rest of the Canadian population. So I think that um, a lot of us are gravitating towards health research because it's a way to like explain what's happening in our communities. Why is that happening? Is there any, is there other sort of underlying social, obviously you mentioned the housing and stuff, but what, what are the other reasons why that, that happens? The reasons why there's so many inequalities. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there's a lot, of, it's hard to kind of summarize. Yeah, colonization in Inuit communities is fairly recent, um, and Inuit only really moved into um, communities, like full time living in one place communities in like the 1950s, kind of. So it's fairly recent um, for us to be living in the way that um, the rest of Canada is has made us live. So I think that that has a big um, impact on like accessing healthcare is an issue because we're in really remote communities. Um, so there's like not always a doctor in your community and there might, it's a really small, let's say there's 300 people, there's not always a doctor there. Um, the doctor comes in a few times a year and then you have to deal with all the issues then. A few times a year? Well, well I'm if you're sick in between. 
So maybe a few years, a few times a year is a bit exaggerated, but like maybe once a month, that's entirely yeah, possible. Yeah. But that's um, <laughs> yeah. So say you're really sick, you break your leg. There's nothing that the nurse can do. They will like there's a thing called a medevac where they just like get a plane and bring you to a bigger um, place. So yeah, there's. There's a lot of, um, like, infrastructure is a really big issue. The cost of living is really, really high um, because it takes, like, you have to fly in everything uh, to Indian communities because there's not, like, roads linking us. So in the summer, you get a boat or boats can come. Um, In the winter, everything needs to be flown in. So it's really, really expensive to get um, nutritious, good quality food. Like, fresh fruits and vegetables are super expensive, like... I think a packet of strawberries that I would buy would be like around ten dollars Canadian, and that is like seven pounds. Mm. So just like the availability of um, healthy foods is an issue, the housing is an issue, the massive housing crisis. You mentioned kind of the politics of assimilation. What does that mean in terms of like state policy towards Inuit communities? Yeah, so the biggest and most prominent example for assimilation policy in Canada is residential schools, which um, happened in the US and I think also in Australia as well. So they're schools that people, um, that children were forced to go to. They were taken from their families to go to these like boarding schools, but the goal was not to educate them, it was to assimilate them to the Canadian, is, general Canadian That population. is appalling. It is, and they, really they were, they were disgusted. Like, Sorry, like, like yeah. No, absolutely, yeah. so they, um, and in these schools, the abuse was like so rampant. There was a lot of sexual abuse, psychological abuse, physical abuse, everything you can imagine happened at these schools. Um, and so in 2015, um, there was the release of this report by the Canadian uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and they basically outlined all of this. And so there's a lot of documentation on what happened to people. How long um, were they around for? The last one closed in, I believe, 1996. Wow. Um, but they've been on for, I think, over 100 years at that point. So it's a really long-standing policy that did a lot of damage, um, and that feeds into the social issues and the health issues. That's and that that explains intergenerational trauma trauma is a huge issue in in your communities, um, because when you don't have a parent, how do you learn how to parent? Yeah, and no one knows how. Like when it's not just you, but whole groups of adults, Mm -hmm. there's no one to turn to. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's really disturbing. Yeah. So. But what's scary is the parallels, like, like this kind of colonialism yeah. with Australia, mm. with like Canada, even in like North America with the native... Uh, the Catholic Church. Yeah, the Catholic Church in Ireland, it's a similar... <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a similar thing, so mm-hmm. like I said, it, it's scary that the state does this on a consistent basis, and it's... It's worldwide, it's a global thing. I didn't want to... I, I agree, I didn't want to sort of say how much it would just reminds me of so many other histories because I didn't also want to take away from that but what the from I'm really interested in that that's that's why I like being in the UK to do my work is because I'm really interested in how what Inuit are experiencing is like it's kind of rooted in Europe Mm -hmm. it comes from Europe and it's a global experience so um, that's why I like to do my work here and see how what 
I've seen and my community's experiences linked to other communities as well. Mm. Can I just ask what your route into education has been then? How um, have you ended up in the UK? Yeah, I have a really different uh, educational experience. So I went to school like a like normal uh, public schools, which I think there's a different word for in the UK. State school. State school <laughs> until I was like uh, in the second last grade. And then I got a scholarship to go to an international school in Canada. Um, it's called UWC. So I went there for two years, my last two years of high school. And then I got a partial scholarship to come to the UK because I was at this international school. And even though it was in Canada, I was like, oh, I really want to study abroad and see like all these other places. So that's when I came to the UK. And then I like just ended up staying basically. Um, yeah. Cool. All in Glasgow too. So. <laughs> oh really? So yeah. you've been here a while. <laughs> do you feel Scottish at all? I don't think so. No. <laughs> but I do appreciate uh, Scottish culture. <laughs> Lots of links with Hamza. Yeah, absolutely. And I there's so many um, examples of Scottish people, particularly Scottish men, um, coming to Northern Canada like back in the day as whalers and uh, working for the. Um, the Hudson's Bay Company, which was like a big um, company that was originally owned by the Crown and then kind of moved into kind of like management and government in Canada and things like that. It's amazing, like the links between environmental destruction, like whaling, nearly wiping out the entire mm -hmm. world whale population, like all the things about like mining and electricity plants and stuff, like the environmental cost and obviously the human cost that's linked of colonialism it's like so staggeringly huge and the people yeah, I know I know like we know this but like when you talk about like I don't know the idea that a government can just be like yeah we don't really give a shit that we're gonna poison hundreds of people yeah I mean the I think the government um, the indigenous organizations and the, the people that are res resisting it are really trying to work with the government to make sure that uh, things are mitigated and mm -hmm. and that the contamination is uh, hopefully doesn't happen but can be managed um, so I'm hopeful that that will happen but it is quite disappointing that um, there was no real uh, meaningful engagement of um, the people who would be affected before they really um, put a lot of effort into resisting the project and they did they did really um, like very um, did a lot of activities like protesting outside of the project, but also they like occupied the hydroelectric project for a few days nice. and like had it, the um, work had to be paused. Um, a few people went on a hunger strike for 13 days um, and that was really, really influential in getting the government, um, the provincial government who's running the project to talk to the indigenous leaders and like try to come to some kind of um, conclusion about what can be done and they did. Uh, come up with a few things and um, made a few requests that were going to be accepted but then uh, they haven't been carried through that was a couple of years ago now so hopefully after what you're saying what's kind of kind of interested me is how Canada positions itself it's, it's almost similar to the place like Scotland so we think as Canada has been a, a tolerant place compared to mm. its post, yeah. post race compared to its southern yeah. neighbour yeah. and just like Scotland considers itself a tolerant place compared to England we see England as the aggressive one, North America as the aggressive one, and we don't talk about 
Scotland's role in the slave trade or don't take Canada's role in kind of oppressing the Inuit population. And it's interesting how they, they kind of try to keep that suppressed. And you talk about the kind of positive narrative of yeah. it, where a tolerant place compared to our neighbour. Yeah, we have a health service. Like we, however, we, we, we are really yeah, bad still. Yeah. What, did you call, what did you call that organisation in Canada, the one that exposed the schools? Um, oh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions. Which I'm sure do amazing work, but that is almost like a vehicle in suppressing discriminative state practice it's really important that that exists but because it exists it acts as a mask to absolutely so actually i I touched on that in my bsa presentation as well um there is a author in canada he's called glenn coltard and he writes about uh, reconciliation politics and how there is like a kind of temporal aspect to reconciliation in that like for example, Justin Trudeau goes on about how there's such a like the most important relationship for the government is with Indigenous peoples, and he's made um, some apologies for residential schools and for um, historical treatment of Inuit who've had TB. So there was a lot of stuff there as well. So there's Coltard says that there's these like a, this industry of apologies, so that um, it yeah. kind of puts things in the past and says, okay, let's go forward while concealing all the things that are currently happening. That's that's like fascinating because it's like even if a reparations discourse starts, it will get used to... It's not the apologies that's needed. Like it's the same, someone was telling me in Australia. So they had this thing where they tried to breed the black out of Australia. So they again would like basically kidnap children, put them in white families. And then apparently the government apologised for that practice recently because they're like, oh, you know, <laughs> that was bad. But there are more black children in care now in Australia than there were when this was government policy to remove black children from yeah. black families. It's the exact same situation in Canada. They, really? and it's called um, the 60 scoop, where a lot of children were like taken away from their families um, and put in white families. And that's the key, that's key to the assimilation policy mm-hmm. and of internal colonialism is like managing the population so that they're not a threat to taking the land. And this is, saying, this is a, a wholly consistent theme. It's the same pattern over and over again. So you can look at the same pattern maybe in parts of Africa and to Canada, to Northern America. It's, what I would say is slightly different is the pattern of, it's like Northern, that's Northern European colonialism. Southern European colonialism is slightly different. So if you look at how, if you look at South America and, and what happened there, it's a wholly different form of colonialism. But there's a, t- there's, a there's a variance in that colonialism. Yeah. And when you see when you when you understand that, you can see that there's so a pattern. So what kind of things in terms of sort of managing potentially so, threatening populations? So when, so when this, the kind of Southern European is all about extraction and deep suppression of the people. So you have a kind of deep gulf between Brazilians of European descent and Africans. There's a split. Yeah. don't ever mix but the, the kind of northern European is this kind of sense of a we want to manage these populations it's a respectable aggression we want to manage them because it's kind of an indirect way of ruling these people you can rule yourself or if you get out of hand be kind of have stated to push you aside but you're never fully inc- included mm-hmm. there's, that, there's that kind of false idea of assimilation but you're never really included mm-hmm. whereas the, the, the kind of southern European is you're over there and we're here and so that's why you have the big goals in like Colombia or mm. Brazil, where you have these are the clearly European of descent and you're Af- of African descent, mm. we're separate, we never meet. Mm. And when so, if you look at like people like Niall Ferguson, we're trying to say that this is how we've the, this is how our Northern European is so exceptional because we, we Northern Europeans have kind of a higher mentality of this, and Southern Europeans just extracted wealth, 
obviously, if you look at the kind of history of colonialism... What, as in the way Northern Europeans did it was good? Well, that's how, that's how, that's how they used that barbarian thesis to say, look, because, so Northern Europeans are exceptional because, look, we developed the place, we, we integrate these people, whereas Southern Europeans got to... Got to um, so we got there first, but these places are now finished. Mm. Whereas Northern Europe, like America, Canada, were first world countries. We manage our populations well, but if you look at the kind of Brazil, you're, you're kind of like, we, we, had, we, we had that start, but you had all that wealth and you wasted it, you squandered it. And that's that kind of that notion of whether it's that kind of Western or Northern European exceptionality. And that exceptionality then masks what your, the, the, your very important research of Inuit communities, because it's like that exceptionalism hides from these clear mm. state violences that you're um, kind of recording in your PhD research. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so my, my PhD research will look at, hopefully, I'd like to look at how, um, how Inuit, like a, through using indigenous research methods and particularly going into what um, an Inuit research methods mean for me is looking at how people um, understand the project, but also like how knowledge is created in relation to issues like this, in relation to environmental um, destruction and like these projects that are being imposed on Inuit without what the United Nations called free, pri free prior and informed consent. So looking at the kind of human rights aspect of it as well. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming to talk to us, Jessica. Like, can't wait to see where your PhD goes. Um, yeah, uh, you've been listening to Surviving Society at the BSA. Uh, we've got one more episode for you. And thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to tune in.